Are you past the point of weary? Is your burden weighing heavy? Is it all too much to carry? Let me tell you about my Jesus. Do you feel that empty feeling? Cause shame's done all it's stealing. And you're desperate for some healing. Let me tell you about my Jesus. He makes a way where there ain't no way Rises up from an empty grave Ain't no sinner that he can save Let me tell you about my Jesus His love is strong and his grace is free And the good news is I know that he Can do for you what he's done for me Let me tell you about my Jesus And let my Jesus change your life Welcome to uh, the Lord's house, and may we be blessed as we receive um, his messages and, and praise him today in song, and we um, 
We're going to be reading our scripture. It's going to be from Psalm 65, starting in verse 1. And while you're getting that, that is page 660 in the church Bible. While you're getting that page open, um, our prayer requests today uh, is uh, Bill and Kathy's, uh, Bill's mom, Carolyn, is in the hospital and not doing well. Um, so we're just praying for the Lord's will in her days. He knows the numbers her days, and we just trust in him. Um, and Bill and Kathy's um, son and daughter-in-law, Ryan and Brooke, uh, we're praying for her high-risk pregnancy that she's due in November, and so we know that God has that child in his hands, and his will be done. Um, and for Joe's dad who passed, it's really for his family. He is in a better place um, with Jesus, and that's uh, praise. But the family, we're praying for peace and transition for the family. All right, Psalm 65, starting in verse 1. Praise is wait awaiting you, O God, in Zion, and to you the vow shall be performed. O you who hear prayer, to you all flesh will come. Iniquities prevail against me. As for our transgressions, you will provide atonement for them. Blessed is the man you choose and cause to approach you, that he may dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, of your holy temple. Thank you, Father. Let's pray. Father, we are mindful of the privilege, the awesome privilege, and the serious responsibility it is to come to you in prayer, Father. We do not want to take this for granted that you have provided a way through your son that we can come to you in your throne room and ask things from you and we can praise you. We pray that we our lives glorify you, Father, in all that we um, think and say and do. Father, we are mindful right now of uh, Carolyn. Father, you... She is in your hands in the hospital, and we just pray that your will be done in her life and to be with the family members around her. We pray for um, Ryan and Brooke, Father, that they may turn their eyes to you and turn away from fear and accept uh, your will, Father, and your uh, provision for them in this pregnancy. We pray for um, Joe's family, Joe Placencia's family, that um, you would help them, Father, to be one in mind and spirit, to be in peace, and to not let the enemy come and want to kill and destroy and divide. Father, we pray for the lesson this morning, Father, that it may be exactly what you want us to hear. We pray for um, those who are traveling, Father, uh, to keep them safe. And Father, we pray that this message, no matter when it's heard, would 
benefit our spiritual walk with you. We thank you, Father, for our presence here today. We thank you for um, you working in the lives of those who aren't here, Father, that you, you are working. You are always working. Thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I can see the waters raging at my feet. I can feel the breath of those surrounding me. I can hear the sound of nations rising up. We will not be overtaken. We will not be overcome. I can walk down this dark and painful road. I can face every fear of the unknown. I can hear all God's children singing out. We will not be overtaken. We will not be overcome. The same power that rose Jesus from the grave. The same power that commands the dead to wake. Lives in us. Lives in us. The same power that moves mountains when they speak. The same power that can calm a raging sea lives in us, lives in us, he lives in us, lives in us. We have hope that his promises are true in his strength. There is nothing we can't do. Yes, we know there are greater things in store. We will not be overtaken. We will not be overcome. The same power that rose Jesus from the grave. The same power that commands the dead to wake lives in us. Lives in us. The same. Same power that can cover raging seas. 
reason why the curse of sin is broken. There's a reason why the darkness runs from light. There's a reason why we stand here now forgiven. Jesus is alive.
Well, good morning. It is great to see you all today and to be together. Um, so grateful for the word that the Lord has for us. As most of you know, um, I love landscaping. I, I love mowing. I love trimming shrubs. I love being outside. I love um, planting new things, um, watering flowers, um, just all of these things. When uh, Rebecca and I got married, uh, we had a yard that was a very dark shade of green, but it was all weeds green. Maybe you've seen a yard like that. It looks good from a distance, but up close, it is just all sorts of weeds. And Rebecca's uncle, um, who's a landscape architect, uh, went to college for agriculture and has lots of great knowledge. He, um, he sat me down and he helped me understand how to maintain this lawn. Now, I should say he wasn't doing it as an uncle. He was doing it as a gift to me. I wanted to kind of learn from him. But um, he gave me a crash course on the fertilizing and the soil, the science of a yard. And he explained how soil can either be acidic or alkaline. And so you have to treat the pH balance of your yard. And this sounds pretty complicated, doesn't it? Uh, it's more than just grabbing a bag of something from Lowe's and then just putting it on it and hoping that things will work out. Um, but he gave me something uh, he called a lawn recipe something that each month I would put onto the yard and I would water in. And um, he told me, if you do these things, in about two years, your yard will look like the fairway of a golf course. And I almost thought this is too good to be true. Just two years, and I can turn this you know, pile of weeds into a golf course. Now, it's not that my yard is without weeds from time to time, but the recipe he gave me, it significantly transformed my yard. Um, one thing he said, I'll never forget. He said, it doesn't matter how green your grass is. It doesn't matter how much you water, how many treatments or fertilizers that you put on it, or even how nice the mower that you have is. If your soil is bad, then your yard is bad. He said, so all the things that I'm teaching you to do, all of the fertilizers, all of the watering techniques, all of the, the cycles for mowing and caring for your yard, they're to treat the soil. And he said, if you treat the soil, your yard will not only look good, but it will be healthy. It will be able to stave off infections from bugs and from mites and from rodents, and it will be drought tolerant. So when it gets really hot, your yard won't burn up. Wildly enough, my yard has always been a place in my life that the Lord speaks to me. Um, sometimes it's physically while I'm working in the yard, while I'm mowing, while I'm weed eating, while I'm trimming bushes or planting something, it seems to be a place that the Lord talks to me and speaks to me about things in my life. And at the same time, he literally speaks to me in my yard. I've had weeds that wouldn't seem to leave no matter how many treatments Rebecca's uncle told me to put on and I put on. No matter how many times I would dig those weeds up, they would come back because the Lord was speaking to me that until he removed weeds from my life, these physical weeds would be there as a reminder. It occurs to me 
that all soil is bad. All ground, all dirt, all soil requires to be tended. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. In the church's Bible on page 3. Genesis chapter 3. Last week we studied some in Genesis, and Deborah taught us about what is called the law of sin and death. You'll remember that Adam and Eve broke God's commandment not to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and according to this commandment, their sin brought death. So we'll read together in Genesis 3, verses 17 through 19. God is talking to Adam and Eve, and he's describing the consequences of their sin. And in, in the list of things that will occur as a result of their sin, it says, Then to Adam, God said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and eaten of the tree of which I have commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, from dust you are, and dust you shall return. Cursed is the ground for your sake, is what the Lord says to Adam. What God is saying is that according to this law of sin and death, there is also now a consequence for the ground, for the earth, for the soil. It too is cursed. It will now have thorns and thistles and will be difficult to work. If you've ever planted flowers or if you've ever worked in the yard, you know this to be true, right? You know how hard it is to get something to grow well. But thorns, thistles, and weeds, they seem to come up naturally on their own without any watering or care, don't they? They seem to have roots that are much deeper and harder to pull out. Have you ever tried to pull up a weed, Adam? And you, you even you go real slow, right, so you don't break it off. And despite your best efforts, at the last second, the weed splits, the root is still in the ground, and now juice is flowing out and it's making more weeds, right? Have you ever considered the spiritual reality to this, that all soil is unbalanced? It is either acidic or alkaline. It is bad, and it is cursed. And like Rebecca's uncle told me, it doesn't matter how green your grass looks, right? It doesn't matter how fancy a mower you have. If you put in premium gas into that lawnmower, if you put plenty of water on it every day, if you use all the fertilizers you can, if the soil is bad, the grass is bad. This is exactly the message that we'll see today in Romans. So turn with me to Romans chapter 7 in the church's Bible, page 1299. Romans chapter 7, page 1299. 
Romans 7 is one of the most hotly contested, debated, and misunderstood passages in the New Testament. And so I want us to start by looking at a very important verse in this passage, and then we'll, we'll kind of zoom out from it. So let's read together chapter 7, verse 15. Paul says, For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. This almost sounds pretty confusing, doesn't it? And it doesn't really sound Paul-esque, does it? It doesn't really sound like the Paul we know who is so stern on sin and so stern to walk in new life with Jesus. Now, without knowing Paul's life, without reading the letter of Romans in the context to this verse, it sounds like Paul says, I just don't understand myself. I want to do good, and I want to be right, but I'm not. Instead, he does the things that are wrong, the things that deep down he hates. Most people imagine Paul explaining his ongoing journey with sin, right? Well, I was saved, but, you know, I do things I don't want to do. I try to do good, but I can't. There's so much more to what Paul is saying than this. But combined with the error that grace is a get-out-of-jail-free card, a defense to remain in sin, many teach that this is simply just our sinful nature. It is the way it is, and everybody sins. We'll understand today that Paul, if he was texting us in a conversation, would be using all caps, exclamation points, and emphatically saying, absolutely not. Now, as we dig into this passage, there's three factors that we've got to understand to have proper understanding that as believers we are justified by faith and that sin should no longer abound in our lives. The first thing is that Paul is describing himself before being saved by Jesus. So if you're a directional person, I'm going to use Paul in the past. Paul following the law, not saved, and doing his best in the flesh. That is who Paul, who is now saved, is describing. Paul spends all of chapter 6 that we studied the last few weeks explaining that we are to be dead to sin, unifying in the death of Jesus, so dead to sin completely. In 6.18, you can look back one page, he tells us that you have been set free from sin, a slave to righteousness. So therefore, Paul is not flip-flopping from chapter to chapter. Back here saying you've been a slave uh, to sin before, but you've been delivered now. Now you're a slave to righteousness. But you know, it's okay. Sometimes we do things we don't mean. Sometimes we continue doing things we don't mean. That's not Paul at all. As we'll see, Paul's describing his former self. The second thing. The second thing that we want to know about what Paul's saying here is that he never condemns the law. I believe the majority of the church has learned to pronounce the words the law like we do homework or the IRS. We say, oh, the law, 
the IRS. Homework. That's not at all what we should take away from this passage. This realization that Paul shares with us is post-salvation. It is in the midst of salvation. It is as one whose salvation is being fulfilled. So it's not a negative perspective that Paul held even before he was saved. Instead, now saved, Paul considers back where he was. And he describes his relationship with God through the law. Now he has access as one who has been saved from it. The third thing we want to see is that the New Testament uses the word law to describe two different things. First, it describes the law of sin and death that we learned about last week. The entire premise of our relationship with God, that because of Adam's sin, we are under this place of death. That's the one use of law. We have been born with a sinful nature until we are surrendered to Jesus. The second is that after delivering the Hebrews from slavery in Egypt, they were given the law, the Torah, at Mount Sinai. And this law is a fuller understanding, the fine print, if you will, of the law of sin and death. We're under this law of sin and death, but God gives these great commandments to his people to instruct them how to walk a life without sin, how to understand his holiness, how to be united with him. And these laws are God's mercy because of Adam's sin. So if we, if we say the law and we say it with this derogatory tone like the IRS or homework, we are offending God's mercy. God's mercy who has given us his Torah, his commandments, his ways, his instructions to honor him and to abstain from sin. So in order to understand the Torah, these instructions, we have to understand it through the lens of this law of sin and death. And also, when we read in the New Testament, we must distinguish between which way of law is being used. For first century Jewish people, God's law was not mentioned in this sarcastic, disdainful way, but instead an appreciation for God's mercy on them for those born under this curse of sin. So let's pick up this framework here in Romans 7. Start with me reading in verse 6, excuse me, verse 7, and we'll read through verse 25. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law, But when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me and by it killed me. Therefore the law is holy and the commandment is holy and just and good. Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good, 
so that sin, through the commandment, might become exceedingly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do I do not do, but the evil I will not to do that I practice." Now if I do what I do not will to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inner man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am! Who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with my mind I serve the law of God, but with the flesh I serve sin. Now, I'll acknowledge that this is a deep passage. And, and it says the same thing in multiple ways. And it's, it's kind of hard to follow Paul because we don't live in this world where we acknowledge what he simply acknowledges before he even writes these words. In this passage, twice, Paul makes this emphatic statement to say, of course not. In the New Testament Greek, there are many ways to say something is untrue or false, but none are as unmistakable or forceful as what Paul does here when he makes this statement, may it not be. It's as if Paul is screaming through these pages at us. I imagine when this letter was read in the church at Rome that it was shouted to get across the intensity that Paul wants us to hear. As if this type of thought, this rhetorical question that he asks, should never be in any believer's mind ever which is ironic because it's exactly what the majority of the church does. Translators aim to capture the meaning of this phrase the following ways in different translations you might read from. Every one of them end with an exclamation point. Of course not. May it never be. By no means. Away with this understanding perish the thought, and even God forbid. This may be one of the few times that I would actually endorse the phrase, God forbid. God should forbid every one of us from engaging in this type of thinking. And the first question is in verse 7, he says, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? To which Paul screams at us to say, absolutely not. But think about how often people refer to the Old Testament law or God's rules as sin. 
as if it was the devil that made us do it. As if God's holy law made us do it. Paul says, perish that thought. The second half of verse 7, he goes on to say that without the Torah, without the law, he wouldn't know what sin is. He's quoting the 10th commandment that we should not covet. And he says without it, he wouldn't have known that he shouldn't covet. What he's telling us is that it is the nature of you and I to desire the things of others that we shouldn't have. And covetous goes even worse. It makes us want to steal from others. It makes us jealous of others. It makes us not even able to be grateful for our friends who have things we do not have because we want what they have. But he says without the law, we wouldn't know this. We wouldn't know this is wrong. Verse 8, he says, But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire, Apart from the law, sin was dead. He's saying that sin is not the end. We imagine sin, and we think its job is done when we do what we shouldn't do, right? Pick the thing this week or this month that you know you shouldn't have done, that you made the choice to do. Sin doesn't want to stop there. With that authority over you and me, it wants to breed even worse sin. Sin's goal is continual and ongoing destruction. So sin seizes the opportunity of the law's consequence to continue this cycle of sin in our lives, to enlarge it, to escalate it, to give us even more evil desires. And that's not a hard thought to imagine. Just like the weed sprouts up, if we don't pull it out by its roots, it spreads and brings more and more weeds. Verse 9, Paul says, I was alive once without the law, but then the commandment came, sin revived, and I died. He says there was a brief time before he understood the law. The alive that he mentions isn't eternal life in that sense, but that he hasn't been able to put to, he hasn't been put to death because he wasn't yet confronted by the law. But we know the law. We've been confronted by this death. We understand the authority that sin has. Verse 10, And the commandment, which was to bring life, I found to bring death. God's commandments are good, and they mean to bring us life if we're in alignment with them. But if we're not, they bring death. More explanation on this to come. Verse 11 says, For sin... Taking occasion by the commandment deceived me and it killed me. Very similar to what we read in verse 8. Uses the same words, opportunity in verse 8 and occasion in verse 11. He says that sin, sin, it takes advantage of the law. Sin knows the law. So when when we sin, sin uses the law to even deceive us so that it can kill us. It's not a game that we're playing with sin and death. It is real life and the consequences are real. To summarize these verses, sin is enabled by the law to do two things. To produce all kinds of evil desire, evil desire even more than we can imagine and already have, and to deceive us in order to kill us. 
Verse 12, Paul says, Therefore the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and just and good. So Paul concludes this section with an emphatic answer to the rhetorical question to say, No, the law is not sin. The law is holy and just and good and for our benefit. So we'll shift gears a little bit to go to the rhetorical question number two in verse 13. But first I want to explain what I believe are some underlying things that Paul wants us to know to understand what he's saying. He says that mankind, you and I, we're not good people who make bad decisions. That's what the world says though, right? Good people who make bad decisions. And we want to believe that, even as those in the church, because it allows us to justify our decisions. We just happened upon sin. We're really inherently good people. Certainly babies aren't born bad, right? But just go out and look at the soil in your yard, and it is not hard to see that that soil is bad. And that soil was the consequence of us entering this badness. But we are sinful people trying to keep a spiritual law. Just like we talked about at the beginning with this bad soil, we've been born under Adam's sin, under the law of sin and death. So our nature is bad, sinful, and carnal. And we're trying to keep a spiritual law. And it's important that we see that because that should present a challenge to us, right? If we acknowledge that we're bad... It should be a challenge to keep God's good spiritual law. If we don't expect this premise, sin will never make sense to us. We'll never want to leave it. It's why the church is full of many people who justify their behavior and give an excuse to sin, expecting grace to make things okay because they truly don't understand what sin is and that we're all born in it until we're delivered from it. So Paul's second rhetorical question in verse 13, he says this, Has then what is good become death to me? He says this to mean, because the law magnifies and reveals our sin to us, is the law itself to blame for our sin? Now, if you're with my line of thinking that that sounds preposterous, you're in the minority. For most in the world and even in the church believe it's really the sin, it's really the law's fault that we sin. If there was no law, we simply wouldn't sin. We'd be ignorant and it would be blissful, right? So it's really this book of laws, the reason that we sin. It's really the stop sign's reason that I didn't, you know, that I got a ticket. Paul's response to this is certainly not. Perish this thought from your mind in order to follow Jesus. He says this is heresy and should never enter our minds. He goes on in verse 13 to say that sin wants to produce even more sin, which is why God cannot leave us in our sin. Have you ever wondered that? 
I mean, many churches teach that, come on in. You're all welcome here. It's okay. What unites us is our sin, right? Not at all. The reason God can't leave us here and the reason Paul now understands that we can't be left here is because sin wants to produce more and more and more. It wants to destroy each and every one of us and it won't stop there. It will come after our children. It comes after our family. It comes into my home as the authority over my house. If I'm out of alignment, it has a right in my wife and my child. Paul and God know better. So they say, certainly not. It's not the law's fault. Verse 14 describes two stark realities. Paul says, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. Paul says two things. He says, the law is spiritual. He's describing, what he's saying is that even though the law describes physical things like covetedness, it reveals a spiritual reality. And it reveals the nature of man and how to honor a holy and spiritual God. The law is spiritual. But on the other hand, Paul says, but I am carnal. Carnal meaning, I am of flesh and blood. I am born into this world physically, not able to fully comprehend what is spiritual. More though, Paul is describing himself. Remember, back over here, before he was saved by the Lord. Before he was saved by the Lord, he's saying, but I was carnal. And what that means is he can't fully understand the spiritual nature of the law because he's made of different stuff. Verse 15. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. This verse is, is kind of complex in the Greek. And in our translations, we read the, the, the word or the phrase do or doing four times. Do you see that? For what I'm doing, one, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. So five times we read this word do. But each one of them in the Greek is actually a completely different word. So let me, let me break this down, what I see this saying. Paul says, I don't, now remember, this is Paul in the past. This is Paul pre-salvation. So he's referring back to who he was describing his understanding. And he says this, I didn't completely understand the end result of my actions. What I desired to do, I could not continually seem to do it. What I didn't want to do, what I hated, what I, what I perished the thought of, that seemed to be able to do much more easily. I believe what he's talking about is what we'd say is our inner self, right? His nature, who he was. His desire, it's truly to honor the Lord. And though he keeps the law as best he can, probably better than most, he can't seem to honor the Lord continually. He falls short. 
His desire is not to honor the Lord. He hates this. He hates it when he dishonors the Lord. But he seems to do it so easily, even though he's trying to keep the commandments as best he can. So his desire isn't the problem. It's not his knowledge. It's not that he doesn't know the law, that he doesn't understand it. But he's unable to honor what is spiritual physically. Now don't lose heart and give up because remember, this is old Paul he's describing and he's describing that for our benefit so we can see that he is now a new man and a new creation. Verse 16 he says, If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. So if then he dishonors the Lord, he misses a commandment, he breaks covetousness by wanting something he shouldn't, he says... This actually means he agrees with the law because it showed him what sin was. Verses 17 and 18, let's read together. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, this is my flesh, nothing good dwells. For the will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. Now Paul is not denying responsibility for sin. But he recognizes now that he isn't and wasn't born a good person. A good man. But a bad man. So while his desire is to please God, he realizes now that back then he wasn't capable of doing it in the flesh. Verse 19, For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice, I continue. Paul repeats what he has told us in verse 15, that his desire is to honor the Lord, but he finds himself unable to do that continuously. It's also important that we see that Paul divides his actions, not as missing the mark, not as not doing what he wants, but as good or evil. We give ourselves a pass and we justify things and we say, oh, yeah, didn't really hit the spot there, didn't really do what my, do my best, but thank goodness for grace. No, Paul divides our actions as either good or for God's purpose, or evil according to the enemy. Verse 20. Now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Now we can understand why all this is happening. Have you ever wondered why you try to do your best and you can't honor the Lord? It's because our nature is what he says. Sinful. Sin dwells in us until it doesn't. It's our nature. It's who we are. And in verse 21 he says, Then I find a law. Evil is present with me. The one who wills to do good. What he says here is, he means as a statement of fact 
that he is evil, even if he wants to honor the Lord. Wrap your head around that. You're trying to honor the Lord. You want to honor the Lord. You start off your day and say, Lord, I want to honor you. I want to do everything you want me to do. But if you're not a new creation, you remain in evil still. This is a challenging reality, isn't it? And it would be easy for us to just get down on ourselves and go, well, why? What's even the use? But the church has made it far too easy to to imagine just leaving this old life and walking down the aisle and coming down here and kneeling and saying, I'm done with myself, I want to follow Jesus. And then we wonder why it's hard to follow Jesus because we don't understand what we're being delivered from. We're being delivered from an old nature that is inherently sinful. Our choices are predicated to do the wrong thing, to offend God's holiness with every breath until they're not but once they are we are to be a new creation and a new man that has been taken out of this slavery of sin and walked over to newness of life where we are filled with spirit and filled with God's purpose let's read what he says in these last few verses well first we're going to read 22 through 25 together but I want to say a few things to pull together these ideas that we've got to grab a hold of at once. First, we've got to remember that Paul is describing his old self under the law before he was saved by Jesus. We've got to see that. Second, Paul is going to use this word law in a new way for us. He says in in these verses, the law of God, which means that now, Now, as a new man, now as one saved by Jesus' blood, he is able to keep the law spiritually. Not just physically, but spiritually as God intended it, able to fulfill his inward desire to honor the Lord. Let's read together verses 22 through 25. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God, though, excuse me, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God but with the flesh, the law of sin. What Paul is telling us is that his old self, as we have nailed down again and again and again, is unable to spiritually keep the law. Even though it's his heart's desire. But his new self, is able to keep the law spiritually. So we've got to see that as a statement of fact. So when others say, well, you know, we just, we all sin, it happens. No. It happens because we choose for it to happen. But if we have been ransomed by Jesus' blood, we are no longer to remain in this sin. 
Paul describes his old self in verse 22. And he says, even his old self delights in the law of the Lord, spiritually keeping the law. In verse 23, he describes his flesh knowing that it can only check the boxes of the law, that even on his best day, that in his flesh, he can't get to the spiritual fulfillment of the law. So in verse 24, he explains how wretched he now sees himself. Being delivered from sin, he sees how wretched he was. And this word wretched actually means to to have worked really hard and still be wretched. But his tone is not defeated, but desperate for deliverance. Which is why in verse 25, he's, he's shouting out, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Because he has delivered me. Two things Paul says in verse 25 that are so important for New Testament followers of Jesus. First, he says, so then, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God. What he means is, I serve the spiritual end of the law. I've now been delivered. I'm now a new creation. God's spirit is dwelling in me, and so no longer am I just checking the box every day to try and be a good person, but instead, I see what the Lord means about covetousness. I can't want what others have, and I don't, because it's not what God wanted for me. So I won't just not be covetousness, but I'll serve the spiritual end. It's the law of God. And at the same time, he says, I myself will serve, excuse me, I myself will serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. So he says, I'm going to serve the spiritual part of the law, but also with my flesh, I am going to check those boxes. I am going to not be covetousness. I'm not going to have covetousness because I don't even want that sin in my life. He says as a new creation, I'm going to do all the things the law intended ever. To remain out of sinfulness and to honor God spiritually. As I've been thinking about this, this great passage that that can be difficult or seem far-fetched for believers who want to make it so simple to just be saved and that's it. The Lord's given me a great illustration. I've always wrestled with the idea of King David as this man who is a man after what? God's own heart. We, we elevate this man David and we, we think back on him and we think, yeah, David was a man after God's own heart. But how do we reconcile the sin in David's life? Not just going after Bathsheba, not just having hundreds of wives, being at war with his family and continuing to go back and back and back into idolatry and rebellion. How do we reconcile this man with the the one who wrote most of the Psalms, who give us this in-depth picture of what it means to be immersed in a relationship with God? And why would God call him a man after his own heart? 
But if we see David in the context of what Paul tells us today, it makes it very clear. Imagine David and hear these things that I say about what Paul wrote. I don't completely understand the end result of my actions, of my sin. What I desire to do, I I cannot continually seem to do it. What I don't want to do, that I seem to do easily. See, David's heart, his desire, was for the spiritual things of God. He loved God and he wanted to honor God with his life, but he couldn't seem to keep the commandments spiritually, could he? This is why Christ has come. Christ has come for Daniel and Adam and David. He has come for us so that we don't have to remain in this place anymore where we desire God with our heart, but we dishonor him with our actions. Turn one last place to John chapter 8. Church's Bible, page 1232. John chapter 8, page 1232. Let's read together. John 8, verse 31 through 36. Then Jesus said to the Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him and said, We are Abraham's descendants, and we have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? Jesus answered them, Most assuredly I say to you, Whoever commits sin is a slave of sin, and a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Here it is, my friends. Jesus died that we may be free indeed forever. The church is fooled with those who have been coerced into thinking that we are to remain under the yoke of sin and dead to freedom. But Christ has overcome death that we are to live according to his purpose and to fulfill the law in spirit and truth. Freedom for his namesake. To his name be the glory forever and ever. Amen.
to all.